banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! What's up, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins number 9. Seems like we're uh, starting to get these out, and uh, we're really starting to get a pile on episodes. I'm digging it. But, before we start this week's episode... Oh, and by the way, my name is Alec Barry. And I'm Scott should, Gardner. Yeah, we should introduce ourselves. That's good. Sound <laughs> professional. Uh, but yeah, like I was saying, before we get into this week's show and talk some old comic books, we have our first listener email... And I'm Woo-hoo! pretty excited for it. Scott's excited. You can hear him. <laughs> and uh, this is from listener Hannah Bear. And it reads, Dearest, my dear, I am writing this mail with tears and sadness and pains. I know it will come to you as, as a surprise since we haven't known or come across each other before. But kindly bear with me at this moment. I have a special reason why I decided to contact you. My situation at hand is miserable, but I trust in God and hope you will be able to help be, be of my hope. My name is Hannah Bear, 25 years old, and I am held of and I am held from Republic of Nigeria. I am constrained to contact you because of the maltreatment which I am receiving from my stepmother. She planned to take away all my late father's treasury and properties from me since the unexpected death of my beloved father. Meanwhile, I wanted to travel to Europe, but she hide, but she hid away my international passport and other valuable documents. Luckily, she did not discover where I kept my father's file, which contained important documents. I am presently staying in the mission camp in Bur- Burkini. I am seeking for long-ter- long-term relationship and investment as- assistance. My father of blessed memory deposited the sum of $11.7 million in one bank in Burkini, with my name as the next of kin. I contacted the bank to clear the deposit, but the branch manager told me that a being... That being a refugee, my status according to the local law does not authorize me to carry out the operation. However, he advised me to provide a trustee who will stand on my behalf. I I had wanted to inform my stepmother about this deposit, but I am afraid that she will not offer me anything after the release of the money. Therefore, I decided to take to seek for your help in transferring the money into your bank account while while I relocate to your country and so down with you. I have my father's death certificate and the account number, which I will give you as soon as you indicate your interest to help me. It is my intention to compensate you with 20% of the total money for your assistance, and the balance shall be, in, be my investment in any profitable venture, which you will recommend to me as having no idea about foreign investment. All communication should be through this email address, only for confidential purposes. Thank you a lot, and I am in anticipation of your quick response. I will send you my photos in my next email. Sincerely yours, Hannah Bear. Excellent. Well, so I, I, I certainly like, like her cartoons, you know, uh, you know, like Huckleberry Hound and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, she seems like she's a big fan of the show. And uh, we're getting foreign listeners. I like that. And she's got a lot of money. And I figure, you know, if we go along with this little investment, we could get a lot of comics out of this. What do you think, Scott? I think it could work, man. Yeah. And she said she's sending photos. Maybe she's hot. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Hannah Bear, and uh, I hope you're digging the show. And if you want to buy us some comics with that 11.7 million, if you can ever get out of this horrible predicament, God bless you. <laughs> and I, I hope you the best. 
So that's our first listener email, Scott. Was that good? I loved it. I thought I, it was awesome. I always like the, the positive feedback. As long as they're not ripping us up and taking us to task, I'm happy. Yeah, man. That was, that was good. So thank you, Hannah. It was a long email, but it was awesome. So on that note, I'm going to pass it off to you, Scott, and allow you to discuss whatever book it is you have for us this week. So Uh-oh. take it dun, away. Dun. Okay, let's see here. I have got from 1979. This is the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 13, king-size annual, as it says on the cover. Beautiful cover on this one by uh, Keith Pollard and uh, Bob McLeod. Really nice art. Now, Keith Pollard's kind of hit and miss with me, but I like a lot of his older stuff, and this one's uh, really fantastic uh, art. And a lot of it, to me, it looks like he's kind of channeling John Byrne, which is awesome because the interior art is by John Byrne and Terry Austin, the team, you know, from like Uncanny X-Men, you know, the legendary Uncanny X-Men, Dark Phoenix, Phoenix Saga stuff and all that. And that's the reason I was, uh, I've been hunting this issue for a long, long time and finally got it on the cheap. And uh, I was hunting this because, you know, I, I'm a big John Byrne fan, especially, you know, from his Superman days and, and backwards. I like all the older John Byrne stuff. Writer on this one is Marv Wolfman, and this story is called The Arms of Dr. Octopus, which I wonder how many times has the same title been used for a Dr. Octopus story. I know I have a giant oversized Spider-Man coloring book that the story in that one is called The Arms of Dr. Octopus, and I'm pretty sure I've read this uh, title different, you know, in, in different issues with Doc Ock, so they need to come up with something a little more original for the name of a Dr. Octopus story. Um, original how, price. How about how about the lovable arms of Doc Ock, <laughs> or the cold metallic lovable grip of Doc Ock? Or just <laughs> fat, <laughs> fat mad, mad scientist. Doc Ock. There you go, fat mad scientist. I like that. I like that one. That wasn't even funny. I should have just kept my mouth shut. Continue. No, no. Well, the original price on this one, and I, I'm going to make more of an effort to to point these things out on these older issues, just because it blows me away that you know we're now paying four bucks for for comic books that you can read in like three minutes, as opposed to these meaty older issues like this. This is a king size annual, so it's just chock full of all kinds of stuff. Seventy five cents on this, and I remember when that price was absolutely scandalous on comic books, you know, and here they are four bucks today, but. Anyway, we start right off. Beautiful splash page on this of uh, Doc Ock fighting with Spidey high atop a uh, like a building under construction. Seems like this is where superheroes always seem to fight the bad guys. I don't know why that is, but just a gorgeous splash page by Byrne and Austin. We get right into the story, and right off the bat, I notice the very first page that uh, I don't hear this comparison made very often, but I always thought that older. John Byrne really, really looks like Jim Aparo when Jim Aparo was really hitting his stride, like on the old uh, Brave and the Bold stuff and old detective stuff. We get a great uh, opener with this mysterious figure who's all darkened out so he can't see who he is, he can't see his face. He's on the run. He knows somebody's after him. He knows that uh, they know what he's been up to and everything. He gets cornered in his apartment by a guy that uh, he gets in a tussle with, and the guy shoves him out the window to his death. 
and we get a look at the guy who's killed him. And, uh, you know, he's a very, got a very distinctive, uh, like seventies look with the long sideburns and all that. We're going to see this guy again in a little bit. That was the prelude to the story, the prologue to the story. We get right into chapter one with Doc Ock. He's down in the subway systems of New York and he's having a hissy fit because something has happened to these secret plans that he had for some sort of super weapon and somebody's made off with them. His fellow henchmen said that it must have been Jimbo that he, you know, took off out of here last night with a smile like the cat that swallowed the canary, they tell him. So Doc Ock, he's all pissed off. He wants blood. He's He wants after this Jimbo guy. He wants to know what happened to his secret plans. We cut to this building. It never really tells what it is. I guess it's some sort of warehouse or something. And Spider-Man busts up uh, a, a theft in progress. And one of the guys, well, the, the ringleader of all these guys that are doing the uh, thievery is the, the Jimbo that Doc Ock is looking for. It's also the same guy that we saw push the mysterious man out the window to his death in the, in the prologue. So Spidey gets in a tussle with these guys. There's a great uh, panel of... Uh, Somebody trying to impale Spider-Man with a forklift, and Spidey just grabs the forks of the forklift and dumps the guy out. Just a really great John Byrne panel of Spidey hefting up this giant forklift. He webs the guys up and uh, leaves them for the cops to find. Spidey's on top of a building. You know, he's kind of admiring his handiwork. He's watching the cops make off with the uh, with the bad guys that he'd webbed up, and all of a sudden. This mysterious figure comes out of the shadows, sneaks up on Spider-Man, which is supposed to be impossible. And Spider-Man even says, you know, how are you able to sneak up on me? And the guy very mysteriously you know, kind of ignores anything Spider-Man says and just keeps telling him, Spider-Man, I need your help. You know, there's there was this murder and I need you to help solve the murder. And, you know, the, the secret, you know, there was a, a secret service agent named Kent Blake and the agency has dubbed his death a suicide, but he goes, I know it wasn't a suicide, and I need your help. And so he's trying to convince Spider-Man to help assist with this. And Spider-Man's very, for some odd reason, he's very reluctant in this story to, to get involved in this. But he decides he'll check up on the situation, and he's going to go to this Blake guy's funeral. So he goes to the funeral, and he meets Blake's wife, his widow and uh, and the two children, and he speaks to her basically as a reporter. And at this time, this was when Peter Parker was working for the Globe instead of the Daily Bugle. And I forget why, but something happened, and he left the Bugle for a while and was working for this other newspaper. Anyway, he talks to Blake's widow, and she says that there's no way that her husband killed himself, that something's going on, and and she wishes that somebody would get to the the bottom of the story with this. Um, then later we see Peter kind of in his apartment and he's brooding over the situation. He's trying to make up his mind about whether he's going to help. Really great John Byrne uh, art in this. And I love it. He's got a great Star Wars poster on the wall of his apartment. You know, this was 79 and, you know, Star Wars was still the big thing. You know, Empire hadn't come out yet. And I just, I, I like this picture of uh, the Star Wars poster on the wall. Anyway, uh, suddenly this mysterious figure appears again saying, you know, you know, he wants to basically know, have you decided to help me or not? And Peter's all freaked out. He's like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, who are you and everything? And the guy, very reminiscent of a of an old Superman story I remember with Pete Ross, you know, the guy just runs up to him and grabs him and rips his shirt open and says, you know, 
I know who you are, you know, stop playing games basically. So, you know, now Peter's all freaked out. You know, how did this guy know that he was Spider-Man? You know, how does he keep appearing to him like this? And uh, he says, you know, basically I've already decided to help you, which is, you know, what's, what's keeping me from, you know, what's basically keeping Peter from being upset with the guy or being mad at him or trying to fight him or anything is that he's already decided to help him out before he did this. And, and the guy knowing he's Spider-Man basically just convinces Peter more to help him and, and for some reason to trust him. So this guy knows where Jimbo is and, and what scheme he's up to. So he sends Peter in disguise and Peter goes looking a lot like matches Malone, you know, when Batman disguises himself as a thug and, and goes into the underworld, you know, he has a certain disguise and Peter Parker <laughs> looks a lot like that. You know, he's got kind of this scruffy, you know, underworlder look to him, which is kind of funny on Peter Parker. He, he looks like, uh, I don't know. He he looks a lot like uh, Nomad's secret identity, you know, with the with the scruffy face and the sunglasses and all. He goes and uh, tries to to join Jimbo's mob, and Jim's Jimbo's very uh, leery of him. He doesn't know this guy and everything. So to prove himself, he takes out all of Jimbo's other henchmen, which convinces Jimbo to you know recruit him into the gang. So they go and. The the gig is basically there's a ship that's come into the dock and they're going to go rob the ship for pieces of this machine or super weapon or whatever that Jimbo's wanting to build. And Peter goes and assists them, but he also secretly prevents them from actually hurting anybody. There's a there's a security guard that they're going to kill, but Peter does something to where you know they don't actually kill the guy and they don't realize that he's done it, but you know he's actually saved the guard's life. So then we cut to Dr. Octopus and he's, uh, he's gone to the jailhouse where the, where Jimbo's henchmen, uh, that Spider-Man had captured earlier, uh, are being held and he's trying to find Jimbo. He's basically tracking down every lead that he can to try to find this guy. And Jimbo had managed to escape from that earlier tussle with Spider-Man. You know, although all his henchmen got captured, he, he escaped. So nobody still knows where he's at. He's off on this other uh, this other job. Eventually, he gets on the right track, and right in the middle of the heist that Peter is uh, has tagged along with on this ship, here comes Doc Ock busting in. He instantly recognizes Peter Parker, sees right through his disguise, and basically outs him in front of all these people. Peter gets knocked out again. This Jimbo guy has gotten away, you know, in the in the tussle. But the other henchmen, you know, realizing that uh, Peter's some sort of spy and that Doc Ock outed him, they tie him up and fling him off the dock to his doom, you know, not realizing he's Spider-Man. So, you know, he just busts out underwater, comes up. And when he comes up out of the water on the dock, here's this mysterious guy again. You know, he's helping him out and, you know, he tells him, you know, I know where uh, I know where Doc Ock is and I know what's going on. You know, you need to run to this place immediately and – uh Peter's starting to get a little bit leery of this guy. You know, how does he know so much and how does he know where to keep sending Peter to, to, to try to, you know, fight Doc Ock and capture Jimbo and all this. But anyway, he follows direction. He goes to where Doc Ock is and he's finally got this Jimbo guy and uh, he's trashing the guy. They get into a, a big tussle. Peter gets uh, thrown off of a, si- a skyscraper. And when he manages to uh, save himself and get back up, of course, everybody's gone again. 
But, I hate when that happens. But the mysterious guy's back again, and the guy, you know, once again is telling him, you know, I know where they've gone. You know, they've gone to this construction site, and you know, you need to hightail it over there. So Peter uh, turns to ask the guy, you know, do you want to come with me? And the guy's gone, you know, Batman style. He's just disappeared right in, you know, mid sentence. So Peter's getting a little bit frustrated with this whole situation. You know, who is this guy, and how does he keep popping up and and then just disappearing like this? He follows Doc Ock, who has Jimbo, you know, tied up in one of his arms, to this construction site. They get in a giant tussle. Just fantastic burn art in this. Just really great fight, you know, something like out of the the Spider-Man 2 movie, you know, all kinds of damage and destruction and stuff being thrown around this construction site. And uh, at one point, Peter actually grabs doc ock you know by one of his tentacles and he's just whirling him around you know in in this you know big circle he actually rips off one of doc doc ock's arms which you know sends doc ock you know into you know this this just you know painful rage you know he's all upset you know and telling spider-man you know basically you know how dare you rip off my arm you know that's that's just as much as part of me as a real arm so you know he's in wicked pain at this point you know it's basically like a like an actual appendage had been torn off of him and while they're fighting and you know spider-man's trying to to keep the advantage he's got on doc ock this jimbo guy looks and he's being confronted by this mysterious guy who kept you know popping up and popping up and he's scared to death of this guy that's popped up and and keeps telling him you know keep away from me don't touch me and then he keeps backing up away from the guy and evidently he forgets that they're on a construction site. He ends up actually walking off, you know, near the top floor of this thing. And Spider-Man's got to stop his fight with Doc Ock and jump off the side of the building and swing down. And he catches this guy just instants before he would have splattered onto the ground. And so, you know, Spider-Man saves him. He goes back up to where the mysterious guy is still on the skyscraper. And the guy says, basically, you know, you need to turn him over to the police you know, you, you've, you know, you thank you for helping out and all this. So he takes this Jimbo guy, leaves him in front of the police station, kind of Batman style, you know, tied up with a note on him. And the cops come out and the guy's like, you know, I confess, I confess, you know, just lock me away. Doc Ock managed to get away, of course, you know, like they always do at the end of the story. You know, the villain gets away and Peter wasn't a- actually able to uh, capture him or, or anything, but he's got a clue as to, uh, you know, how to follow up. In the epilogue, uh, Peter goes back to uh, Blake's house to talk to the widow, you know, basically get her reaction to, you know, the killer's confession and everything that he had killed Blake and, you know, that she was right. You know, he hadn't killed himself and, you know, basically just the wrap up of the story. And while they're talking, she shows Peter a picture of her husband, of Blake, and it turns out that this guy who had been assisting Spider-Man through the entire story, the mysterious stranger who kept popping up and directing him where to go was the dead man, Kent Blake, which freaks Peter out totally. And he walks off at the end of the story, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, David Banner style, you know, from the old Hulk TV show where he's, you know, kind of walking into the distance, but he's all freaked out about this, you know, that he'd basically been assisted through the whole story by a ghost and, then it says to be continued in Peter Parker Annual Number One. So I'm assuming that's where you know we get the rest of the the Doc Ock story in this. I haven't read that one yet, but now I'm curious to to follow it up and see uh, you know how the rest of the story turns out with Doc Ock. But 
just a really fantastic story. It was a little bit predictable, I think, you know, who the guy was going to turn out to be and all that, but it was still pretty neat. And the, the burn art really made it fantastic. Just a, a really good issue. And I'm glad that I finally tracked it down. This is one that I wanted for a while. And then uh, I got a real kick out of the last several pages of this book are touted as a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes. Now, granted, it says most famous foes, but are these guys really his most famous foes? And here's here's a rundown of who we get. We get the Molten Man. He's pretty cool. We get the the Looter, who uh, originally went under the name the Meteor Man. I've only seen this loser in like three stories ever. <laughs> he's pretty sorry. And he's got one goofy-looking outfit. We get the Rhino. Grant, he's pretty cool. The Shocker, the Kingpin, Silvermane, and Man Mountain Marco. I haven't seen them around in quite a bit, but they, they had a pretty good story in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man uh, quite a ways back. Like I think it was like the mid-'80s. It was a pretty good story with Silvermane where he turned into like a big cyborg or something. We get the Prowler, who I always thought was cool, but he's not really a foe of Spider-Man. All right, I mean, this is the one that really threw me. The kangaroo. <laughs> the kangaroo is one of Spider-Man's <laughs> most famous foes? I don't think so. And then we get a layout of uh, Peter Parker's pad, the Daily Bugle, the Daily Globe, and Empire State University to wrap out the issue. So pretty cool. I, I really enjoyed this book. I, I thought it was really nice and uh, always always nice to look back at some classic John Byrne artwork. And that's cool. Amazing Spider-Man Annual 13. Nice. Yeah, I, the, you mentioned Silverman. I just got done reading like a whole uh, nice chunk of Spectacular. And I think it, it comes from maybe 89, 1990. Uh, it does have Silvermane. I don't I don't know if it's a story you're mentioning, but it does have a couple issues of Silvermane uh, in the big cyborg get-up. You know, he's got, you know, he's got control. He's going for Spidey and all this stuff. It's a pretty good story. I did uh, it, out of this, yeah. Did it have cloak and dagger in it? Um, no. Okay. Yeah, it must be. I think that's set a little bit after the story I'm thinking of, because the one I'm yeah. thinking of, I think, is the one where he was. Gosh, it's been like 20 years since I've read this story, but it was something about he was an old man and he was dying or something, and they made him into a cyborg, and it had something or other to do with. Uh, with uh, Cloak and Dagger, and I think he, maybe even the Owl might have been involved. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read that, but I, I think I know the, the story you're talking about, and I don't think I've actually read that, because he comes back later and fights Spider-Man again, and he's looking much more like Metallo from Spider-Man in, in the later stories, I think. Yeah, in this story, uh, you kind of just get it from the beginning where these cyborgs are out chasing Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Uh, you don't really know what you know, where they're coming from, who's in control, and then you later find out it is Silvermane as a cyborg, and then Peter kind of tracks down the cyborgs and then goes to Silvermane's lair, if you want to call it that, and then just kind of beats the crap out of them. And then they kind of <laughs> le- they live, they leave this kind of cliffhanger where uh, the cyborg body is destroyed, but then it turns out it was just like a decoy cyborg and the real Silvermane's still around. And then it kind of just leaves you with that. But I thought it was a pretty cool story. I always thought Silvermane and like Hammerhead. Uh, kind of those gangster type of, you know, characters. I always thought they were good villains. You know, I never had a problem with them. Uh, the Prowler, I think the Prowler is awesome. Uh, I, I'll agree with you. I don't think he's much of a villain either, but I think he's, I just think he's a great character. I think, oh, yeah. I would love to see, uh, like, uh, 
something done with the Prowler today, just like sort of maybe like a five issue like Max series or something. I think you could do. I think if you got the right writer on it, I think you could do something really really cool with that character. Mm-hmm. I think he has a lot of potential, you know. I've always thought he was cool because one of the very first Spider-Man comics I can rem- ever remember reading is the one where I think he and Spider-Man are fighting as they fall down an elevator shaft or something like that was the cover on it. It was just a fantastic issue. It may have even been the first Prowler appearance. I'm not sure, but it was one like my older uncles had in a stack of books I remember reading as a kid. And he, so he's always stuck out in my memory as just, you know, one of, one of the first Spider-Man characters I can ever remember. But I just thought he was really cool. You know, he, he was really smart. He came up with all that stuff on his own. He created all of his own gear and, and had a really cool outfit that was very unique and everything. And, you know, for all the lamenting over the years that, you know, there aren't really good positive, uh, black characters in comics. Well, he was, I mean, he was awesome and, Sadly, just not a whole lot was ever done with him, and he seems to be forgotten whenever good black characters are mentioned in comics, and I, I don't know why that is. I just love his origin story. He was a window cleaner. <laughs> he just got <laughs> bored one day. That, I mean, that's his origin. He was he was a window cleaner who came up with some technology to help him with his job, and then he saw the power in it for crime, and that was then he eventually turned good. That was his origin story, and as funny as it sounds, like... I think a lot, there's a lot, like, in the character of Hobie Brown, like, kind of his background and stuff that I think, he, like, a writer could just play with and really make him an interesting character. I just, again, I'd love to see something done with, like, Prowler in the present day. And then you mentioned Doc Ock, and that's, like, that's probably one of my favorite villains of, like, all time. Mm-hmm. Whether it be comics, film, or whatever. I just think he's a great character. And, you know, Green Goblin always gets the... The uh, reputation of being Spidey's, you know, big arch nemesis. But I always kind of looked at Ock as like I looked at Ock as more of that because he is he's kind of just like the anti Peter. You know, he's the science guy, but he just happened to take the wrong path. You know, right? Like, I mean, they were both gifted with extraordinary powers and sort of, and some sort of accident, right? But they just kind of you know Peter took the road on the the road of the good, and then Ock took you know the bad path. Uh, it was just that slight change that kind of made them two different people. And I always thought Ock was more of uh, Spidey's arch nemesis than the Green Goblin. And I, I'd love the character for that. Yeah, I, def- I would definitely buy that. I, I've always I, I've always thought the same thing about Doc Ock, that he's much more, you know, the, the true arch nemesis, the true uh, almost anti-Spider-Man more than, than Green Goblin. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know. I love Spidey, so cool bring for you to bring this up. <laughs> All right. So what you I, got? I got, I'm going with Image again because I love them. And uh, this is from probably like my favorite Image book of all time, Savage Dragon. And it's from like probably my favorite period of the book. I'll give a little history on this period. And I, and I think, Scott, you're not much of a fan of this, this part of the book. I remember you telling me this, but um, this is the period of the book where um, it, it's kind of, it's known as the Savage World storyline. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, in the story, we pick it up, Is it starts off with issue 76, where in issue 75, uh, there's this giant explosion and sort of like apocalyptic uh, catastrophe that like basically puts the dr- Savage Dragon into this like alternate reality, uh, where he finds like it's, 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 a, it's a world very similar to his, but yet 
Uh, there's some things different, you know, like friends of his and cast members are kind of in different uh, situations and they're different positions. And uh, the world is vastly changed uh, compared to his own. He finds that the world is now under control of uh, one of his kind of like joke villains, Cyberface. He basically controls the world through technology. Uh, and he, the Savage Dragon is basically left in this savage world where... He doesn't really know anyone, he doesn't know exactly what the hell is going on, and he basically has to find a way to take out Cyberface and somehow find his way home. And it's kind of like this uh, like 20-issue, 20 20-some-issue 20 odyssey of Dragon in this alternate like reality, uh, just trying to find his way back. Uh, and it actually turns out, if you read Present Size Dragon, he never actually got back. It's still this altered world. Where, you know, the Savage Dragon pre this, that world you saw back in the 90s is kind of gone now. In a way, if you look at the period and the story, uh, Larson kind of did his own little soft reboot in a way. You know, he was able to maybe, he was able to switch some stuff up uh, with this kind of new direction and he kept it. Which I just thought was really, really interesting. And another big part of this period was very early on in the run... He had a lot of homage paid to Jack Kirby with the way the art was... I mean, Larson, to begin with, is kind of like a Kirby-style artist. But, I mean, he got really heavy with it early on and just kind of the way he told his stories. And just even the idea of the story is kind of very Jack Kirby-esque. And I just... I love that aspect of it. But, I mean, that's kind of like the the premise of uh, this kind of period of Savage Dragon and... I've read, like, most of this run. I just picked up this issue, 94, uh, you know, cover dated December 2001. I just picked this up recently at the comic shop. But um, I've read most of this run, and I just think it's absolutely great. I think it's just a hell of a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's just, I I love the idea of it. But uh, in this issue, we're kind of late in the story of the Savage World, where the dragon's kind of... He's found his cast of characters that have been kind of scattered about in this new world. He's kind of uh, getting them together uh, to take down Cyberface once and for all. And uh, in this issue, we basically just open up with Cyberface kind of in his like uh, space satellite headquarters. And he has a character, uh, Vanguard, who you'd recognize from like the Savage Dragon stuff previous. He just has him captured, and he's kind of like in a cameo appearance sort of deal. Uh, but he's captured in his lair, and Cyberface is just kind of talking to himself and planning and kind of coming to the conclusion that he's just going to take control of all the ships, uh, all of these warships, and just basically just, just end it all, kind of end the world and everything. And, uh, and some more background, Cyberface came into control with, by, uh, in this world, uh, before Dragon got there, there was this Martian invasion and uh, Cyberface was the only guy that could take out the Martians and save the world. And by doing that, he was able to sort of win public opinion and become leader of the free world. A little bit kind of like, if you want to look at it as, like, how Norman Osborn is right now in Marvel with Dark Reign. It was kind of this, it, it's kind of the same sort of situation. But uh, back to the story, you know, he's kind of in his lair planning uh, sort of the end of the Earth. But then, blah, 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 hero dragon emerges and basically just shoots him in the chest and the fight's on you know this is this is kind of the epic battle we've been waiting for uh we come to another character named as known as frank darling who you would know from uh 
you know, Savage Dragon history. He was kind of the guy that got Dragon into the police force and kind of uh, helped shape him into the hero that he is. He finds uh, characters William and Rita, uh, who go by Star, and uh, I'm not sure what Rita's uh, superhero name is. It's not in this issue, so I'll just let that go. But um, he's kind of trying to bring them together for Dragon to help them out, to help him out in this sort of final confrontation. So you've got that little plot point building. Uh, you go back to the fight, Dragon and Cyberface are still duking it out. You know, they're, uh, Cyberface is basically using all the technology around him to fight Dragon, and it's really kind of a cool battle. Um, you know, it just goes on for a couple pages. And then we find uh, the Vicious Circle in this alternate world, finally, where in the previous world, the Vicious Circle was the big crime gang of Chicago, and they were basically like the Savage Dragons, uh, like big, big bads. And uh, one of the characters and one of the leaders named, known as Skullface is in this page fighting. Uh, and he's basically saying that he can sense the end of this confrontation in Cyberface's reign. And it's time for him to step up and take control of the Savage World. So you've got that kind of going on. And then in the next page you have two characters known as Dart and Mako. And they, these two have been stuck on this sort of tropical island as lovers, and uh, but it turns out that Mako has really kind of lied to Dart about the state of the world. He's told her that, you know, it's the civilization basically has been destroyed, uh, just to kind of keep her on this island with him. Yet, you know, the civilization has been pretty much altered and destroyed, but not totally. Uh, you know, so she kind of finds out the truth, and now Mako thinks she's probably she's probably just going to leave him on this island for good. Uh, we go back to the fight. Savage Dragon and Cyberface are still duking it out, kind of for the fate of the world. And then we see this lone sort of mad scientist uh, in the pits of Chicago uh, on his computer basically trying to run a virus through the Cyberface uh, networks and take down Cyberface and his technology. But then Cyberface senses the, senses the virus's presence and the scientist through the network and takes him out. So that little sort of backup's gone. And uh, then we just kind of come to the final bits of the confrontation between Dragon and Cyberface. And basically, Cyberface puts a hole through Dragon's chest, and that's where we're left off with the issue. You know, this is kind of coming to the end of the big Savage World story. I haven't read the end yet. Uh, but again, knowing that from reading pre present stuff, I, I know he doesn't really get back to the previous world, but I'm not exactly sure how Cyberface was taken down. Uh, overall, I thought this issue... I don't think it was one of the best ones out of the Savage World uh, storyline, but I thought it was pretty good. You know, I think it's I think it's what it should be for the event that's taking place in the book. I think it, you know, from, from the build up that's been over that storyline, I think it's pretty good payoff in this. And then, you know, cliffhanger, yeah, I don't think Dragon's dead. Of course, he's not dead, but I think it's good enough to draw you back. And it does. I mean, it's pretty tense. You know, you want to see where it goes, and you want to see how it continues. And, again, I just, overall, I loved this whole period of Savage Dragon. I thought it was great. I just loved how they kind of brought the Kirby homage and just the fun and excitement and, like, the no-holds-bar of the story. And uh, I thought Eric Larson's artwork was great throughout this time period. I thought it was really kind of where his artwork took a jump uh, and really started to become its own thing. And uh, I just thought this was a good issue. Now, what number was this? What What issue number was this? Uh, issue 94. 94, okay. I think this is quite a bit further on than where I'd... See, I... 
You were right. I I didn't think a whole lot of this storyline. This is actually as much as I love Savage Dragon and was uh, was reading through it and everything and and trying to get caught up. I honestly I kind of stalled out in the middle of this uh, this Savage World story. I'm not sure exactly what issue number. I, I think my problem with it is I'm not much of a Jack Kirby fan. I mean I respect the man for everything he he did for comics and. You know the the vast body of work that he did, but I'm just you know I'm not personally a fan, and this was really Larson's love letter to all that Kirby stuff, and so it really has the Kirby feel. It, you know, it, both in the art and the writing style and everything. It's uh, it's kind of like Savage Dragon meets Commandy or something like that, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's exactly. I mean, it has that whole Commandy vibe of like sort of the last. I mean, basically, you know, Commandy was the last boy on Earth. This is you can take a look at Dragon as being, you know, the last survivor of his original world. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's not that I hated it or anything. It, it just it it really drug on too long for me. And I think if this had been, you know, like like basically miniseries sized or something like that. You know, where it was, you know, where it came and it went. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you take some, some things that happen in, you know, your regular title every once in a while. There'll be a regular event will happen from time to time that maybe you don't care for, but you can kind of wade through it. Like, for me, I always think of like when the X-Men go to space, you know, anytime the X-Men goes to space, I'm always like, ugh, not again. You know, but it usually lasts for, you know, a couple of issues and it's over and they're back and it's, you know, it's it's kind of a short little thing that you can wade through. And I kind of wish that this thing with Savage Dragon had been that way, you know, where he went off, he had this little alternate reality adventure, and then it was back to, you know, his regular, you know, butt-kicking stuff. And I don't know how long this, this thing ended up lasting, but I know that I'm already at the point where I stalled out. I was already well over a year into it and it just seemed like it was lasting way too long and I just didn't feel very invested. You know, alternate reality stories just never really do it for me because ultimately they they usually end up coming off where they don't really have lasting ramifications for the character or the world that they live in or the or the supporting characters that they deal with or what. So at the end of the day I'm always kind of left with well what was the point? And I, I kind of have the feeling that this story will play out that way, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, I, I like I say, I respect what he was going for, but it just for me personally, it didn't really appeal to to why I like Savage Dragon so much. But eventually, I do plan to get back, you know, to it and and wade through it and go on because I understand that you know everything afterwards, you know, got really good. And I'm curious how. You know, I'm assuming he eventually gets back to his, you know, no, his no, normal well, world, and and I'm curious how he gets there if he does. You know, if he ever well, does get back, he he doesn't. I, I mentioned that what I was saying is, you read the current stuff, it it makes note of this world, and it doesn't really seem. I'm not ex- like a hundred percent sure, but about eighty eighty five percent, I'm pretty sure that he's still in the same world. Oh wow! I I really don't think he. I I think this story like. Like I was mentioning, this I think this was Larson's sort of soft reboot of the title, where he kind of was able to mix some things up in the continuity of it. Huh. You know, I, I don't really think 
Because, I mean, I, I've read some of the current stuff, and they make mention of a lot of, the, like, happenings of what happened in the story. And the way that it's kind of worded, it doesn't really seem like he got back. And uh, I just, that was kind of the one big shocker, is, you know, I, well, I, I had the same feeling when I was reading it. It was like, well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of an alternate reality story. I'm loving it as I'm reading it, but, you know, Dragon will get back. But then I started reading some of the recent stuff, and it, still seemed like they were in the world and kind of the way the characters were changed and everything and I thought that was really really cool so oh. I, I'm I'm not 100% sure but I'm around 80% that uh, I don't think they ever got back and I think it's they're still in quote unquote the savage world oh wow well and actually strangely even though I don't like that very much now I'm curious to read it to find out you know what what actually became of it because one of the things that that was interesting about it was that it, it gave a second chance to a lot of characters that had either died outright or you know had been drastically changed or altered or whatever in the in the normal savage dragon book you know we we got some characters back again so if he is indeed still stuck in that alternate world in the current books that could be interesting you know because there were some characters that came back that you were like you know they, they'd done a slight twist on them or something like that and it it kind of gave dragon you know a second chance to either you know make right or or it gave you know a, a different uh uh antagonist angle to you know old relationships you know good or bad or whatever so i i kind of like the potential that's there for that i just you know at the point that I I stopped reading, I just didn't care for where it was going. But you know, I trust Larson that you know maybe he uh, maybe he turned it around as as far as you know my personal likes and and you know pick back up and and hit the same uh, stride that it was hitting prior. So cool. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the dragon. Dragon <laughs> kicks ass. Oh yeah. I wish it's more all... people would discover uh, discover that book because you know I, I talked to so many. People that are into comics and, and really enjoy comics and read a lot of the same titles I do and stuff like that. And, you know, they either read a couple issues, you know, at the beginning and dismissed it or they've never, you know, more than likely they've never tried it at all. Most people I talk to have never even picked up an issue. And it just shocks me. You know, here's a book that's, you know, got one of the longest, you know, runs in comics, you know, with the same writer and artist, you know, through the whole thing and, and just you know, high quality throughout, and so many people have never even checked it out, it seems. I just, I'm kind of surprised by that. If you didn't get it, get the free comic book day issue. It came, it's free, pick it up. You know, I read it, it's really good, so. <laughs> just buy it, people. I'm telling you, it's good, buy it. It's that easy. <laughs> One of your comic shops and get Savage Dragon. wraps up another episode of Back to the Bins. If you have any feedback, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. Yeah, please email the show. <laughs> and all content featured within this episode is the sole property of Back to the Bins. No rebroadcasting or retransmission of this content is permitted without the written consent of Back to the Bins. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Please join us again next time we will go back back to the beans and buy savage dragon woo <laughs>